Well, good morning. Uh, This morning is our last sermon on the book of Revelation. And it seems very appropriate that the last sermon on the book of Revelation focuses on heaven. Why do I say that? Because actually Advent is a description in our tradition of the first coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. And in Advent, we remember the first coming and we anticipate the second coming. So when we think about the book of Revelation, we're talking about anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ in his second advent. And often we refer to that as heaven come down to earth. And that's what the last two chapters in the book of Revelation are all about. Before we begin, though, thinking about the particulars of the book of Revelation, I want you to remember with me something. Remember a time in your life. It could have been recently, it could have been long ago, where you had an experience of breathtaking beauty. Breathtaking beauty. I can remember a number of those in my life. I remember the first time I ever really saw the stars. Not as a child, but as an adult. More than 40 years old. I was in Africa, in a region that had no city lights. For miles and miles around, all the villages had no lights. So at night, when you stepped out from the place you slept and looked into the sky, you saw lights that were always there that you'd never seen before. It was breathtaking. I remember also the first time I ever saw the sun set on the Pacific Ocean. You might say to yourself, well, Bob, that's not that big of a deal. But... You also might not know that I was raised in South Florida. So the only time we saw the sun on the water was at sunrise. And you can imagine most of us were not going to wake up early in the morning to see the sunrise. So watching the sun set on the Pacific Ocean was stunning. It was, well, breathtaking. Another time I remember seeing something that took my breath away was the first time I ever saw the Grand Canyon. If you've never been there and have an opportunity to go, don't pass it up. It's one of the most breathtaking experiences you'll ever have. I have a few pictures of the Grand Canyon and some of the breathtaking views that are a part of that site. The first picture is the one you're looking at now. In that picture, you see the Grand Canyon illuminated by the setting sun. And it only captures just a tiny element of the grandeur of that space. The next picture of the Grand Canyon is not the sun setting, but it's in broad daylight. You may be able to see down in the canyon, there's a river that winds through that huge, enormous canyon, the Colorado River. The next picture is a picture of the Grand Canyon when you're down there on the river. And you can see the beauty all around you. That was a breathtaking experience for me in two kinds of ways. First of all, it was breathtaking because it was the first time I had seen it. But second, there was something else later that was rather breathtaking about it. My son and I hiked all the way to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, 
camped in a tent overnight and came back out. That was another kind of breathtaking experience, or should I say, we were out of breath most of the time. This summer, my son and I visited four different state parks, and we hiked in all four of them and camped there as well. We hiked at Teton, we hiked and camped at Yellowstone, we hiked and camped at Zion, and we hiked and camped at Bryce Canyon. There were a lot of beautiful things to visualize in those places, but the one that stands out to me the most is Bryce Canyon. This picture gives you a glimpse of what it looks like to stand over the canyon wall and look into that beautiful setting. It really just takes your breath away. You wonder if you're actually on the earth. It's so beautiful. What is my point? My point is this. When John got the revelation of the city of God descending upon the earth, it must have taken his breath away. He'd never seen anything like it. And he gave us word pictures, but we haven't seen anything like it either. It's the end of the book of Revelation, the grandest point of the whole story, chapters 21 and 22. And I want to divide it up into four pictures and read for you the sections that I call four pictures. The first section comes from chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will be with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What a beautiful first picture. The beautiful first picture is the kingdom of God, heaven descending upon the earth. Now, this is not a picture of people playing harps up on the clouds. This is a very real picture. It's not a picture of what happens to us necessarily after we die, because we don't know. What we know is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If I were to die today, my body would not be raised tomorrow. When I was working on some graduate studies at Princeton University, I walked past routinely a graveyard. The graveyard had in it one of the most amazing, if not the most amazing theologians in the history of our country. His name was Jonathan Edwards. 
No matter whether you agree with him or not, he was a remarkable theologian, and his grave is there. And I visited his grave. Had I chosen to do it, of course I wouldn't have, and it would have been illegal, I could have dug up Jonathan Edwards' grave. I could have exhumed his body and what was left of his decaying bones. Jonathan Edwards, as we know, was not in that grave. But on the last day, the day of resurrection, Jonathan Edwards' body is going to be raised. It's going to be glorified. It will meet heaven and earth on this real earth again. The holy city was coming down from heaven. It reminds us of the picture in the Old Testament. When a group of people, arrogant as they were, decided they were going to build a tower called the Tower of Babel, and they were going to reach to the heavens, they were going to go up. This picture is exactly the opposite. God comes down. The first picture describes a location where there is no longer a sea. That might seem odd to us. But when you think about the book of Revelation and much of ancient history, you'll know that the sea was a place of, well, danger. It was a place where legends were born concerning monsters that destroyed ships. And in the book of Revelation, you recall, when John got his revelation from God, out of the sea came two beasts that destroyed on behalf of Satan. No longer, says John, is there a sea. The dwelling place of God is with humanity. The first time we encounter, as a scriptural reference, the dwelling place of God is in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. God dwells among his people in the center of the people of Israel as they advanced across this wilderness. God's presence was there. The second time we see this word tabernacle used in a new way is when Christ came to the earth in John 1. The same author says that the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And the third use of the term that we see is right here. God is coming down and bringing heaven to earth and he will dwell with his people forever. The covenant will be complete. No more departure of God. No more Jesus leaving this earth with the disciples wringing their hands and asking, what are we going to do? Heaven will descend and it will be eternal on this earth. One of my favorite phrases from all of the scripture, but especially the book of Revelation, is a description that says there will be no more Death or mourning or crying or pain. Consider these in reverse order, will you? We all do our best to avoid pain. And routinely, pain inflicts upon us an injury that makes us cry out. We cry out in pain. And crying out is not just because of physical pain. Crying is often because of emotional pain. It's because of a broken heart. It's what happens every time we lose someone on this earth. We cry out in pain. We shed gallons of tears for weeks or months on end. 
And then you know what happens? Our crying turns to a silent, unrelenting mourning. Our tears are gone. We're too exhausted to cry anymore. But we're in a state of mourning. When heaven comes to earth, pain, crying, mourning, and finally death will be gone forever. That is the promise of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. The second picture happens in 21, beginning with verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the whole the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of very precious jewel, like jasper and clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three on the north and three on the south and three in the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. A beautiful city depicted as a bride walking towards her husband. I told you I'd experienced some breathtaking views of nature. I have. I've been privileged to be at those places. But there is nothing, nothing in the natural world, in my opinion, more breathtaking than a bride walking towards her husband. Why? Because it's not just the beauty of the earth. It's the beauty of unfettered love. It's the beauty of a woman saying, I am yours and you are mine. God says in the end, heaven's going to come down and it's going to be like a bride. The most beautiful thing you've ever seen. It's shown with brilliance, like jasper and clear as crystal. And it had gates on all four sides. Entrances to cities didn't normally have gates on all four sides. There's something symbolic going here that the nations, the kings, as we later see, are going to come in from all over the world, north, south, east, and west, and the doors are open for them. The dimensions of the city are fascinating. The dimensions of the city are 1,500 miles in both ways, equal, in effect, to the Roman Empire, perhaps a little bit of a statement concerning the grandeur of heaven. Not literal, but a statement concerning the empire. In addition to that, the city is 1,500 miles tall. This is a gigantic place which is in the form of a perfect cube. A perfect cube representing the perfect cube when the temple was made. The Holy of Holies was a perfect cube where God's presence was revealed. 
The third picture comes in 21 as well, this time from verse 22 and to the end. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need a sun or a moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On that day, on no day, will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is no temple. There is no need for intercession because God is completely present. God's tabernacling has happened in his real person. There's no sun and no moon. We walk by the light of the sun. We live by the light of the sun. It nurtures and helps us. We grow plants by the light of the sun. And the moon has its own form of light for us. But there's no need for it because God is the light, the source of life for all of us in the new heaven and the new earth. And the kings of the earth, they will come in from all around and they will bring their glory. They won't bring the machinery of war to fight against the people of God any longer. They will come in and glorify the king of kings and the Lord of lords. These kings, all of them submit and honor him. There's nothing shameful or deceitful and only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life exist in this new heaven and earth. By the way, Satan at this point has been doomed. Deception is no more. And the people who tried to kill and did kill the martyrs who followed Jesus Christ, they've been abolished. Paradise restored means evil destroyed. Unequivocally, that's what the new heaven and the new earth show us. The fourth and final pictures in chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever 
and ever. Every prosperous city needed a river to run through it, or perhaps on its outskirts. Prosperous cities needed the river for water. It was their source of life, you may say. And in this city, the river of life goes right through the center. And on both sides are the trees of life. Trees bearing 12 different fruit. I, I began to speculate as I was thinking about this. What are the 12 fruit that I would like the most? I'd like to believe that they're represented on those 12 trees. And there is no season where they go out of season. Every month, the trees are repopulated with this fruit. So you have the water of life and you have the food of life right in the middle of this great and glorious city. There will no longer be any curse. There will no longer be any death. And for the first time ever, we will see him face to face. The end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22 gives us these words. Jesus says, I am coming. That's a promise. And blessed are those who keep the words of this book. Not blessed are those who understand every part of it. Not blessed are those who's got the figured out according to their interpretation. But blessed are those who keep the words of this book. Blessed are those who anticipate Christ's coming. Blessed are those who in this life keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. Blessed are those. Hang on, he says. I'm coming soon. So what does this story teach us? So many things. But one thing that we've said before is the story teaches us that there is a beginning and an end to history. And that the author of this story, this history, the author is the sovereign creator of all things. The one who made it originally pure and good will bring it down back to its pristine order. It teaches us that we shouldn't simply trust what our eyes see only. We must live by faith. We must live by faith because God's victory is coming. It also teaches us something that some of us haven't ever really recognized. And that is this. It does not teach us that this world is evil and will be burned up in a catastrophic way. It teaches us that what God created is beautiful and good. And he will restore it completely someday. You know what else we learn in this book? Heaven is not escapism. It's just not getting away from our problems. Heaven is actually an opportunity for complete sanctification. 
It is an opportunity to look at God face to face, to be in a perfect relationship with God, unmarred by sin, and to be sanctified wholly by his grace. Heavenly worship is not about mystical angels playing harps on clouds. But it's about a life of praise and joy. A life that is unfettered by sin. To use the words of the scripture, the psalmist said, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is what we have to look forward to. This is the last chapter. This is the end of the story. And it is even better than the beginning. It's not Eden all over again. It's paradise restored and made better in the perfect, unencumbered by sin presence of God. I don't know about you, but I I really look forward to the day that all the pain is gone and all the tears are gone and all the mourning is gone and all the death is gone. We've walked through some difficult times together that have included pain and crying and mourning and even death and someday it will all vanish like a pitiful mirage and will be in his presence forever. Will you pray with me? Our gracious heavenly father for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we give you thanks. We also, Lord, thank you for the gift of your scriptures. In particular, we thank you for the end of the story. The story that promises that someday you will make everything new. And as we wait, Lord, as we wait remembering and celebrating your first coming, make us faithful as we wait and anticipate your second coming. May we do our part to live in such a way that your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth just as it is in heaven. And may we have hope in the eternal reality that someday this pitiful mirage that we call our present existence, which is weighted down by sin and death, it will disappear in perfect eternal life will be ours. And Lord, this morning as we approach communion, we give you thanks for the body and blood of Jesus Christ our Lord, for the remembrance of his death, but especially the remembrance of his resurrection, which makes all this possible and will eventually make everything new. These things we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.